Great. Well, um, as you've probably guessed, um, I am your speaker for this morning. So um, if you've got your Bibles with you, it would be great to turn to Luke chapter 7. And um, Luke chapter 7 is, uh, well, we're doing a series at the moment looking at these early chapters of Luke's Gospels, chapter 4 through to 9, and uh, over a, a couple of months. And this These chapters are about the time that Jesus spent in his ministry in a region called Galilee. And uh, that's part of northern Israel. And as we've gone through uh, and as we go through, maybe even today's stories are very familiar. And our hope is that instead of familiarity breeding contempt, which is always a danger, is that instead, because we know the story, we're able to focus in even further on some of the details. And instead of breeding contempt, it will breed in us wonder and amazement at our hero, Jesus. And this series, really, this preaching series, is an opportunity, an invitation for us to gaze once again upon Jesus Christ. So when Jesus launched his public ministry, he, he did it in a synagogue in Nazareth, and he quoted In his opening sermon, his manifesto, if you like, which we looked at a few weeks ago, these verses from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And today we're going to look at the first part of chapter 7. And I think these two stories are examples of Jesus bringing about the year of the Lord's favour. So I'm not going to read the passage to you. Um, It's going to be read to us and also with video uh, alongside it. So settle back and enjoy uh, Luke chapter 7 verses 1 to 17. Wow, isn't that just amazing? That's Jesus. That's our saviour. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to unpack this passage. Lord Jesus, we hear that and we see that depiction of those stories about you, of what you did. And we want to be amazed afresh at you, the Lord of life. So would you anoint my words? Would you open our hearts to receive afresh from your word? This morning. Amen. So there's two stories here. It falls into these two clear parts. I'm going to look at each of them in turn and then I'm going to um, uh, compare and contrast them a little bit and then make some concluding comments. So that's the the plan of what we're we're going to do over the next 20 minutes. And um, so the, the first story is the centurion and his servant in verses 1 through to 10. Now the land of Judea was under foreign occupation. The Roman Empire had stretched out and extended its reach to cover that small strip of land at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea that we know today as Israel and Palestine. And uh, in order to preserve peace right across that region, right across its empire, the Roman soldiers were based at key strategic locations throughout. And one of these bases was the city of Capernaum was a small city on the northern shore of the Lake Galilee. 
And it was a, a center of commerce because it provided a convenient stopping point from the Mediterranean coast as people went inland and vice versa as they got to the coast um, as part of that whole trading network. And it was the hometown of some of Jesus' most famous disciples. So Simon Peter and his brother Andrew were from Capernaum, as were James and John. And you'll know that they were fishermen, so based on the lake there in that city. But also in the city was this garrison of Roman soldiers that would have been placed there. And the centurion that we meet in this story would have been in charge of 100 soldiers, a century of soldiers, if you like. Just as a little side note, in case you're interested and looking for something to look up in your Bible this week, why don't you read through Luke and Acts um, and look at how many times Luke writes about centurions who show faith or who are godly in the way they act. It's quite an interesting study for you. But anyway, that's a total aside. Back to the story. Our story begins with this centurion who is deeply, deeply concerned about his servant or slave, who is, in verse 2, we find him sick and about to die. The centurion had heard about Jesus in verse 3. And so he steps in and he basically becomes the go-between between his sick and about to die servant and this Jesus who he's heard about. And uh, the centurion doesn't go himself, but he sends Jewish elders to go and meet Jesus and ask Jesus to come to his house. I mean, it's interesting in itself that this centurion has enough uh, clout or respect within the, the town to ask Jewish elders to go on a message for him. But that's what happens. Anyway, they come to Jesus. They speak very highly of him. He loves our nation. He's built our synagogue, that kind of thing, and ask Jesus to come. And then as the story unfolds, we see the centurion has a bit of a change of heart. And he actually sends more people, this time friends, to Jesus to ask him not to come. Because actually he realises that no self-respecting Jew would come into the home of a Gentile. Realises that he as a Gentile isn't worthy of asking this Jesus, this rabbi, to come into his home. And it's at this point that we see the standout feature of the centurion. And that is his faith. In this whole account, Jesus never meets the centurion. But he does commend his faith. And he says that actually this centurion's faith surpasses any of the faith he's found in Israel. And the centurion's faith is based on two things. Firstly, it's based on the fact that he understands authority. As a, an army man, he would have understood authority. The centurion would have had authority. And he says, I say to that one, go and they go, that one, come and they come. But he's also under authority. There will be a commanding officer who gives the centurion his orders. And he in then turn gives his orders to those under him. And so he recognises this chain of authority, recognises how it works. The one with authority speaks and then it gets done. And basically, once it's been spoken, it's as good as done. That's what authority means. And the centurion understands that. But the second thing he understands is that he understands who Jesus is. He recognises who Jesus is. 
He recognises that this authority and the way it works, but then he recognises the one who has the authority. And he knows that all that's needed is for Jesus to say the word and it will be done. The author to the Hebrews writes the following. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. And Max Licardo phrases faith like this. A conviction that he can and a hope that he will. I love that. And I think that's what the centurion demonstrates here. A conviction that he can and a hope that Jesus will. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Utter conviction that he can do it. And a hope that he will. Conviction and hope. And sometimes people will come to Jesus in faith that maybe, just maybe, Jesus could do something. And maybe he would choose to do something. And as we read through the Gospels, we see it happen to Jesus a lot. There's not just this account. But you remember Jairus, another community leader whose child was dying. And he just was convinced that Jesus could do something and hoped that he would. Or the woman who was bleeding, who was convinced that if she just touched Jesus' robe, then she would be healed. Maybe she would get the healing she so desired. Or Bartimaeus, the blind man on the outskirts of Jericho, who shouted out, Son of David, have mercy on me. A conviction that he could do something about his situation and a hope that he would. And there are many, many more. Just one touch, just one word, just one look. Just say the word, Jesus, and he will be healed. There's no doubt in the centurion's mind that if Jesus speaks, his servant will live. A conviction that he can and a hope that he will. Now, interestingly, in the passage we read, there's no record of Jesus saying anything in terms of that word of healing. What was the word? Well, I think that's probably deliberate, so we don't do it as some kind of incantation or magic formula. But we know that he must have said the word because we read that when those sent by the centurion returned, the servant was healed. In verse 10, he's found in good health. And the reality is that the intervention of Jesus brings about transformation. That's what happens when Jesus gets involved. Transformation happened. And so from verse 2, when the slave is sick and about to die, we get to verse 10 and he's found in good health. That's what Jesus does. That's what happens when Jesus gets involved. All we need is a conviction that he can and a hope that he will. So for the centurion and for his servant, death is prevented, death is thwarted, death is staved off. Destiny is changed when faith is activated. And Jesus says the word. A few years ago, my dad was very ill with um, what turned out to be uh, an illness that killed him. It was incurable. And reflecting back on that time, my prayers were full of conviction that Jesus could heal. 
I was utterly convinced by the grace of God, I was able to hold on to the fact that Jesus could turn this around. Now, in the event, Jesus turned to heal him for eternity rather than temporarily on earth, which is hard to take. But throughout it, my praying was full of a conviction that Jesus could do this and a hope that he would. And sometimes it works out how we want. Sometimes it doesn't. That's not really the point. The point is that faith believes that God can do things and hopes that he will. Sure of what we hope for, certain of what we cannot see. So what is it you're facing? Maybe for you or on behalf of someone else, there's a situation that you need Jesus to intervene in. And there's an invitation today for you to come to him with a conviction that he can do it, that he is able to do it. And cling on to a hope that maybe he will. So I'm going to ask you, if you're able to, to stand. To stand right where you are and look to Jesus. What is it you need? What is it you need in your situation? Is it a word of healing, like the centurion here? A word of provision? A word of comfort? A word of encouragement? A word of strengthening? Whatever it is, ask him now. Jesus, say the word. Because if you do, that situation can be changed. A conviction that he can and a hope that he will. I'm just going to be quiet for a moment to give you an opportunity to ask Jesus to say the word for whatever situation it is that has come to mind now. Jesus, we want to be a people who take you at your word. A people who are utterly convinced that you are able to do more than we can ask or imagine. And to hope that, God, you would intervene on our behalf. So all these situations that have been offered to you, just like the centurion, we ask, would you just say the word? Would you just intervene, Father, and change things? Amen. If you'd like to sit back down, then feel free, or you can continue to stand, I don't mind. But let's look at the second story, the widow of Nain. I mean, for her, my word, life was over. It was over for her son, clearly. He was at his funeral. But it was over for her, too. She had no hope left. Already wearing widow's clothes because her husband had been taken from her early. She was now on her way to bury her only son. A young man on whom she relied for income, for support, for dignity, for security, for her future. And he was gone. Death had once again invaded her life. Robbed her. Brought with it sadness, misery, grief and vulnerability. Along with the hopelessness and the shame that came with it. And 
the funeral procession is making its way out of the city of Nain. And a sizable crowd is following. Jesus is coming into the city. And I love the way in this translation, um, a large crowd is with him. So like there's a sizable crowd for the funeral, but there's a large crowd with Jesus. Jesus sees this procession as it's making its way to the burial site, well away from the city. And Jesus goes over and he literally stops death in its tracks. He halts it there and then. The Lord of life meets the procession of death. And when the Lord of life is around, death can't cling on. Can't keep a tight grip. I love that. I love that picture. An inexorable journey to the grave until Jesus stands in the way. But notice the widow, because that's what Jesus did. She made no move towards Jesus. She couldn't. She was locked in her grief. Her eyes were filled with tears, focused on the desperate situation she was now in, totally racked with grief and loss. But Jesus intervenes. Jesus restores. Notice that he is moved with compassion. He felt compassion for her in verse 13. In the first story we looked at, Jesus is moved by something external to him. The faith of the centurion stirs him to action. Here, Jesus is moved by something internal. As compassion wells up inside him and he acts. It says, when he saw her, he's already seen the crowd, he's already seen the coffin, he's already seen the procession. No doubt, as he saw them, he would have empathised with their grief, felt some degree of sadness along with them. Just the other day, we were driving along and there was a hearse in front of us going very slowly and it just turned across the road into the church. Flowers spelling granddad down the side. My heart just went out to the family. I prayed for them. In their grief, in their time of loss, there's something about funeral processions that does that to us. And I'm sure it did that to Jesus as well. But it says, when Jesus saw her, when he saw the woman, the mother, the widow, He's moved with compassion for her. There's something about her situation that grips the heart of our Saviour. And he's moved. And he acts. He ignores the protocols. I mean, he he interrupts a funeral procession. That's a no-no. He goes up and he touches the coffin. Well, you don't do that. It makes you ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And it's just bad manners, surely. And he also speaks to a dead man, which is bonkers. Well, it's bonkers unless you're the Lord of life. Because what happens as he speaks to the dead man is that the son lives. Again, we see this transformation when Jesus intervenes. 
And it's not just in story one, he can thwart or prevent death. I mean, that's impressive enough. But here he reverses death. (laughs) He sends death packing. He stops death in its tracks. And the son receives life and the widow receives back her son. And it's all because Jesus saw. He saw and he allowed himself to feel compassion. He allowed himself to be moved and moved enough to action. So let me ask you a question. Who is Jesus going to bring into our lines of sight this week? Who's going to come across our paths this week? And will you be open enough to the Holy Spirit to allow compassion to well up so that we act? Now, before I bring a few concluding remarks, I really want to encourage you to delve a bit further into these two stories. And my suggestion for life groups this week is just to spend time looking at these two stories and comparing and contrasting them. Luke loves comparisons. And there's a real richness to be found in comparing and contrasting accounts that are often side by side like this. In it, we see these four people who are all recipients of the grace of God. But let me just whet your appetite as to some of the contrasts that you might find in there. So the centurion, he's a male and he's a Gentile. He's wealthy. He built the synagogue. He's got a great reputation in the community. He's influential, influential enough to send Jewish elders and friends to on a message for him. He has real authority. And in contrast, we have the widow who is female, who's a Jew as opposed to a Gentile, who is poor. Although that's implied, but we can assume that. She's helpless. She's the bottom of the social pile. She has no authority. These two characters are clearly contrasted. But the people who are ill or dead as well. On the one hand, you've got a slave. One of many slaves, no doubt, in the household of the centurion. And then on the other side, you've got the son, the only son of the widow. And in the one story, we have the centurion coming to Jesus. In the other, Jesus has to go to the widow. We've got a healing from a distance with just a word. And then we've got a healing up close with a touch. On the one hand, we have this active, incredible faith demonstrated. On the other, all we see is hopeless grief in action. On the one hand, we've got this concern over the the Jew potentially making himself unclean by coming into the household of a Gentile. On the other hand, we see Jesus ripping up the rule book and touching a dead body. You see, both these people were outside the circle of privilege. The circle of privilege was to be Jewish and to be male. Those two things gave you right of access to God. Neither of them were those things. So they have no right to call on God, no right to expect God to intervene. 
the centurion describes himself as not worthy. And the woman would believe from her bitter experience that she clearly is not worthy of the favour of God. But when we look at these stories, what is clear is that there are no limits to whom Jesus acts for, to whom Jesus helps. No matter what your social status is, no matter who you are, no matter what levels of faith, no matter how desperate you need, no matter how qualified or unqualified you are, no matter your personal history, Jesus sees you and Jesus can intervene. You remember Jesus' opening sermon in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. He said that the year of the Lord's favour would be like the days of Elijah and Elisha. Well, the centurion's story has echoes of Naaman coming to Elisha. Naaman was a captain of a foreign army. Just like this centurion, captain in a foreign army. Who sought out Elisha for healing. Elisha didn't even go and meet him. He just told him to go and have a wash. Notice the authority in operation. Jesus said there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, but only Naaman the Syrian got healed. My guess is there were many sick slaves in Capernaum at the time of Jesus, but only the centurion who had faith got healing for his servant. Why? Because the centurion is our example. A conviction that Jesus can do it and a hope that he will. Just say the word and he will be healed. But again, in that first sermon, Jesus also reminded them that the days of the uh, Lord's favour, the year of the Lord's favour would be like the time of Elijah. And the story of the widow of Nain has echoes of the story of the widow of Zarephath. Elijah is sent to the widow, just like Jesus goes to the widow of Nain. And the miraculous flour and oil don't run out all through the famine, but her son dies. So she's a widow with a dead son. Just like this woman in Nain, a widow with a dead son. And the son is raised from the dead in both instances. You see, Luke is telling us loud and clear, the year of the Lord's favour is here. It's here now. And it looks like foreign army commanders coming to Jesus. And it looks like widows being blessed. And it looks like slaves getting healed. And it looks like dead sons living. It's the year of the Lord's favour. That's what we live in. So are we seeing this? The centurion, like Naaman, came. Came to Jesus and asked for healing. But Jesus had to go to the widow. And so we have two examples to imitate here. On the one hand, we have the centurion who acts with faith. And on the other, we have Jesus who acts with compassion. Faith and compassion. We need both of them in abundance for these times. We need faith to take Jesus at his word. A conviction that he can do it. A hope that he will do it. And the faith to say to Jesus, say the word. But we also need to have compassion. Compassion is at the heart of mission. And we need to feel. We need compassion to see others as Jesus sees them. So let me ask you, do you walk around with your eyes open? Is your heart soft and ready with compassion? 
ready to support the student who opens up to you about her abortion, the colleague who admits to struggling with mental health issues, the friend who tells you that they're trapped in a cycle of using pornography, the young man who has suicidal thoughts, the elderly neighbour who's lonely, the friend who is shielding and scared. Maybe they've got nothing left to give, no strength to go on, but you see them and you feel compassion for them, which transforms their world because it opens up the door for Jesus to come in. Or maybe you're listening to all this and you say, but I've got nothing left. I've got nothing left. Well, we've been there just earlier. All you can do is plead with Jesus to say the word, to intervene. And that's fine. Cling on to him, the unchanging ones. Because when Jesus arrives, things change. He is the God of miracles. And we're going to sing that now to finish. I just want to pray for us before we go into that. Lord Jesus, we see you in action. We see you intervening in the lives of those you encountered, bringing healing where there was sickness, bringing life where there was death, bringing freedom where there was bondage, bringing wholeness where there was brokenness, bringing hope where there was despair, bringing joy where there was grieving. And God, we ask, would we be instruments in your hand? Would you stir faith in us, faith to take you at your word, faith to call out for you to intervene, even if it's the only thing we can do, faith to call on you. But give us compassion as well, Lord, a deep well of compassion that when we see those who you bring across our path, we are stirred into action to bring the love of Jesus into people's lives.